We're continuing the series that Jez began for us last week, and if you missed his sermon, um, it should be on the podcast later this week. Um, uh, do uh, catch up with that. We're going to be working our way through uh, this letter to the Ephesians uh, by one of the very earliest Christians, Paul, and uh, I'll, I'll give a word or two about that in a moment. One of um, our favourite stories, I don't just mean me or my family, but in general, one of the favourite stories you ever hear is rags to riches or nobody to hero, zero to hero. And uh, it's that sense that perhaps any of us could really make something of our lives. I did a quick Google search earlier this week because I was thinking about this. And if you type in um, uh, millionaire homeless or homeless millionaire, um, there are 40 or 50 pages of stories of people who have at one point in their life been homeless uh, and penniless who ended up millionaires. Now, I don't know whether any of them are true. Um, I don't just assume that when you look at something on the internet. But on the other hand, it's certainly a very clear, um, attractive story. That thought that somebody can start with nothing and end up with everything. Of course, uh, it, you see it in uh, slightly even more trivial ways, things like Cash in the Attic um, or the Antiques Roadshow. There's something about... I mean, I have no interest in antiques at all. But if I ever catch it by accident on TV, there is still something where you're sitting there thinking, wouldn't it be great if this sort of thing that's been found in somebody's heirlooms is worth hundreds of thousands of pounds or because we just sort of hope well maybe that might be me i've checked my attic there is nothing of any value whatsoever up there but you know we can still hope and dream of course you spread that story wider and you think of the number of great bits of literature or great stories for children or for adults that have uh, somebody who would think of themselves as very ordinary living out a very ordinary story in their everyday lives, who finds themselves suddenly, unexpectedly, perhaps even against their will, caught up into a much bigger story where they end up the hero. Uh, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings are obvious ones, where uh, Bilbo, then Frodo, this little, genuinely little physically, as well as little in terms of sort of self-esteem or a sense of their place in the world, finds that this little story they've been living is part of a much bigger story that they're caught up into. We love that sense of zero to hero, rags to riches. But of course, there is that sense at the end of many of those stories, especially things like the, the zero to hero, when the sort of everyday ordinariness of, of reality hits again. And we recognise that in our own lives, we get occasional sniffs that perhaps there's more to life than just being ordinary me. It may not be through inheriting a sum of money. It may not be through some worldwide fame. It may simply be that sense we get that we're part of something bigger, something greater. The birth of a first child, the view of a stunning sunset, the the being part of a, a big orchestra or a choir, being caught up in a great concert or a great sporting occasion, that sense of being part of something bigger. And then sadly, we have to get back to the ordinary, everyday reality, that reality creep that makes us feel very small, part of nothing very great at all. Paul, as he wrote this letter to the Ephesian churches scattered in little groups around this great city of Ephesus some 2,000 years ago, knew that they and he, like us, had many reasons to forget that they were part of something much bigger, part of something much greater, that they were, in spiritual terms, multi-millionaires, heirs to a great fortune, rich beyond compare. They were a tiny, 
isolated minority. For the most part, persecuted for their faith, looked down upon for their silly superstitions, isolated in little groups just meeting in people's front rooms. Paul himself, as he wrote this letter, we think was languishing in prison. Not for having done anything wrong, robbed a bank or uh, perpetrated a swindle, but simply by telling people about Jesus. He and they knew that there are many reasons why we need lifted up, picked up to see this bigger story that we're part of. Jez last week uh, uh, made the comparison with the, the, the Millennium Wheel in London that sort of lifts us up above uh, the sort of skyline so that we can see the bigger picture. Or in the, the Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. That, do you remember the glass elevator that takes you up? Suddenly it bursts through the roof and head out into space and they can see the whole of the earth. A different perspective. And the book of Ephesians is like that. It's meant to grab us by the lapels and hoik us up above our normal everyday life and say, you are part of something much bigger. You are the inheritor of something great. You have, even now, the opportunity to experience and enjoy something much more than the ordinary, the everyday. And Paul makes it explicit as we go into verse 15, which is the part of the letter that we've got onto. I, just as a quick, very quick aside, uh, apropos of nothing, you, I, get, I hope you've picked up that when Paul wrote these letters, he didn't write in chapters and verses and with headings. He wrote a letter, just like you or I might write a letter or an email. Um, it's only much later that we've added in the chapters and verse headings simply so I can say to you, verse 15, rather than go, right, count eight sentences in and you'll find the bit I'm talking about. Just in case you wondered. This was a letter written to be read out in these little gatherings of Christians in Ephesus to encourage, to pick up, to show them the true reality of what it meant to be part of God's family, of God's world. And here's what he says, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking. Now, if we stopped there, and if I said to you, right, here's Paul, and he's writing to a group of isolated, persecuted, minority Christians, really struggling with life, really struggling to know they're okay, what might he pray for them? You and I would have thought, well, he'll pray for strength, or he'll pray for protection, or he'll pray for courage, or he'll pray for healing if any of them have been injured, or he'll pray for wealth, or, or, or a job, or a, a better status in society. And Paul doesn't do any of those things, because Paul recognises that what they need most is being lifted up to see things as they really are. So this is what he prays. It says, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. That phrase, so that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, literally means that the eyes of your heart might be sensitive to Rather than being blind to it, you'd be sensitive to it. So you'll know that the light spectrum extends far beyond what human beings can see. We can't see infrared, we can't see ultraviolet. There's a sort of, there's a, a, a part of reality we don't see. And what Paul is saying to them is, I pray for the eyes of your heart that they would be sensitized to the full reality of who you are in Jesus. 
because their greatest need, more than anything else, more than protection, more than healing, more than a comfortable life, more even than courage, because all of those things would flow from this, the most important thing is that the eyes of their heart would be sensitised to the reality of what they've been given in Jesus. And then these three things, I mean, there's so much he could have said, but these three things that he says, I want you to see the truth of this. He says, I want you to see the hope that you have in Jesus, your value to God in Jesus, and the power that is yours in Jesus. Hope and value and power. Verse 18, towards the end there. May be enlightened in all that you may know the hope to which he has called you. It's not a very good translation. This isn't a great passage for the NIV. And, and actually what they, it, what it would maybe, it's slightly more clunky, but what would make more sense of what Paul actually writes when he wrote in Greek is rather than um, the hope to which he called you, it actually more means the hope of his calling. Now that may sound like me splitting hairs, but actually there's a difference there. The hope to which he calls you sounds like a thing over here that is your hope. And one day you'll get to it. The hope of your calling is to say the hope is actually the call of God on your life. Let me try and illustrate that. Uh, we were, I wasn't here last weekend, you may or may not have noticed. Um, and um, uh, we were off uh, for my niece's wedding in Northern Ireland. And uh, my niece, uh, Jen, was getting married to Greg and uh, my Hannah was being a flower girl and we had a fantastic day. Um, the only sort of sad uh, part of the wedding, it was a very sort of minor thing in, in terms of the wedding as a whole, but for them it was a big thing, was that um, there was a big question mark over whether one particular person would be there or not. Uh, Jen uh, trained, I think, as a doctor alongside somebody called Anne uh, and Anne's surname is now Trimble. And for those of you who are rugby fans, you may have uh, sort of recognised that name. Anne is married to Andrew Trimble. Uh, last year voted uh, Ireland's you know, best rugby player. And um, the big question in the run-up to the wedding is whether he'd be at the wedding or not, because it was all dependent on whether he got called up for the World Cup side. He was waiting for a call. And the hope for him was in this call. It wasn't a thing over here. It was, was he going to get the phone call that he was in the squad? And those of you who are into rugby will know that, uh, I, I suspect, and it must be devastating for any professional sports person to not get picked, that because of an injury he's picked up, despite being last year's greatest um, Irish rugby player, he didn't get picked. Um, now, as it happens, he got picked for Ulster the day before, so he still wasn't at the wedding. But, but it set me off thinking about where does our hope lie? For him, it was in this phone call. It was in the call that he wanted to receive. And actually, if that phone call had come through, he would have received the hope. It wouldn't be, well, I don't really believe it until I walk out on the pitch... It was in the call itself from his manager, from his coach. Uh, Nick Easter, sorry, another rugby illustration. You're going to get lots of them over the next few weeks. Nick Easter, who's a, um, a veteran, I think we're allowed to call him now, uh, English rugby player, didn't make the English World Cup side. But he was in the, the BBC website this week saying that he's still waiting for the call. He's still keeping himself, he's still sort of keeping himself ready because he's hoping. But that hope will be fulfilled when he gets the call. Not just when he goes out on the pitch. When he gets the call, he's in the squad. Now, Paul knew nothing of rugby, poor chap, but he did know this. He did know that the call of God on his life in Jesus, when God says to you, when God said to him, when God says to me, I call you to know me. I want you to be part of my family. I want you to belong to my kingdom. That's our hope. 
It's not somewhere in the future that we one day might get. It's not something that we're not sure about, we're not certain of. We'll get there one day, we hope. It's not that sort of hope. It's the hope you receive in a call that is certain. That's the hope. He says, may you have your eyes wide opened to know the hope of his calling. You've been called by God. Whoever you are, God, your heavenly father, calls you to be his son or daughter. Whether you think you're worth it, whether you think you've done anything to deserve it, whether you think you should have been called up or not, he's called you. May you have the eyes of your heart wide open to see it. There's a second thing. He doesn't just say that you may know the hope to which he has called you or the hope of his calling. He also says, and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's the end of verse 18. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now again, in the Greek, that's a gloriously ambiguous phrase. It could mean your inheritance in God or it could mean God's inheritance in you. Both are quite Pauline. He enjoys both of those statements. I suspect it's probably more the latter. His glorious inheritance, God's inheritance, in you. Now, on one level, that makes very little sense. How could we be God's inheritance? But for Paul, it's right at the heart of knowing how much you're worth. It's not what's in your bank account. It's not what job you do or what your family think of you or where you are in the community whether you're noticed or not, whether you have lots of friends or you're on your own, actually your value, says Paul, is how much you're worth to God. And the word he uses for inheritance is a very technical term. It's a term that was used of the portion you would receive from your father when he died in that culture 2,000 years ago. And the portion of his wealth was what would set you up for life. It wasn't a society in which there was much upward mobility. It was a very static society, very hierarchical society. If you were born into a particular sort of uh, echelon of society, you tended to stay there, and you stayed there by dint of your portion, your inheritance. So when your father died, if you were lucky, you had a portion of wealth that you then lived on, almost literally, because it was usually a parcel of land if you were lucky, and you lived on the land, you farmed that land, and you passed it on to your children. It was, it was the thing that made you who you were. It was the most precious thing to you, your portion. Here's the staggering thing that Paul wants our eyes to be open to. That you and I are God's portion. God's inheritance. It's picture language. But the picture language is of God looking at you, not as an optional add-on extra that he's not terribly interested in but if you really must then you know I'm delighted to see you actually saying you are my inheritance you're what make this reality you are precious to me you are my portion we find ourselves part of a much bigger story the story of God's love for his whole world the story of God making those whom he will love those whom he will call those whom he looks forward to inheriting, bringing in to his life. That's how much you're worth. That's how much you're worth. So says Paul, may you have the eyes of your heart enlightened, sensitized, so that you may know the hope of his calling, because God's called you up and says, be mine. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, because you're worth that much to God. And his incomparably great power for us who believe.
Now, again, they flatten things out in the NIV because in verse 19, they've put a full stop after believe. Um, Actually, what it should say is, his incomparably great power for us who believe according to his mighty strength exerted in Christ. According to, it's a tiny little Greek word, katar. And it literally, it just means this is how you get it. This is how it comes. You know, in, in um, sort of the old style liturgy, you'd read the gospel reading, you'd say the gospel reading according to John. In other words, the source of this gospel reading is John. It's the sort of on good authority or the source of this thing. Well, this power, says Paul, is according to God's power. The source of it is God's power. And how can you see it in action? Well, he then sort of unpacks what happens to Jesus. Verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand on high in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. His power, says Paul, is so great that your best way of starting to get sensitized to it is to look at what happened in the resurrection. Because the most powerful thing that any human being will ever know is death. And so says Paul, even death dies under the hand of Jesus. It's the end of that stunning John Donne poem. If you've never read it, you should look it up. He writes about death, and at the very end of this poem from a few hundred years ago, he says, death, thou shalt die. It's a wonderful line. But it's not bravado, it's not whistling in the dark, it's not railing against the coming of the night. It's the confidence of knowing that because Jesus died and was raised from the dead, we see the power of God defeating even death. So that even in our dying, we inherit new life. So there is a confidence of a life beyond death. Because death, thou shalt die. Eyes wide open, says Paul, to the hope of his calling, because you belong to God, he's called you to. To the riches, the value of you, whoever you are, whether you think you're worth anything or not, to God, your heavenly father. And to this power at work in you now, that is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. William Randolph Hearst was a journalist and a newspaper magnate from the turn of the last century, the early 1900s. The man on whom, uh, apparently, Citizen Kane, the great film uh, character, was based. Uh, He was fabulously wealthy. He was obsessive in his collecting of art, uh, paintings. There's still collections of of his that are around today, and are hung in some of the uh, most famous art galleries in the world. And the story is told and fairly well attested that um, uh, at some point towards the end of his collecting career, um, he got obsessed about one particular painting that he wanted to own. And he got one of his most trusted advisors, one of his most trusted minions, I guess, to, to come to him and he said, this is the painting I want by such and such a painter. Whatever it costs, I need you to buy it for me. And his assistant spent months trying to track this painting down months. He, he went to the far corners of the world, he, he looked in all the auction houses, all the great uh, museums on the earth, came back to um, uh, William Randolph Hearst and uh, looked a bit shamefaced. And he said, well, well, what is it? Can you not find it? Oh yes, we found it. Well, where is it then? What will it cost? I don't care. You don't have to worry. Whatever it costs, I'm willing to buy it. 
And he said, well, no, you don't understand, sir. You already own it. He had so many paintings. He was so obsessed by this one, but he had no idea. It was already his. For Paul, he wants to say to you and he wants to say to me, you have no idea. This big story you're part of. The riches of God's inheritance. The value that you already have. You don't have to strive for by earning more, being better, being bigger, being more impressive. You already belong to your Heavenly Father. You simply need the eyes of your heart to be sensitized to what God's already given you. How does that happen? By the gift of God's Holy Spirit. I pray, he says, that you may have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Simply means God coming into our lives by his spirit and opening our eyes to see more of him. So if you want to pray one thing for him yourself, pray one thing for a friend, pray this. That God by his spirit will open your eyes to see what you already have in Jesus. We're thinking this term about our next steps of faith, stepping forward. That might look all sorts of different ways for different people. I hope for many of us this week it's going to be signing up for a life group, helping us step forward into something new, some new aspect of faith, some new aspect of knowing who we are. For some it will mean stepping into leadership, being following some new call of God's. For some people it would mean stepping into the very earliest stages of even just exploring faith. But however we're stepping forward, the Bible says you already have it all. It all belongs to you and Jesus. As we step into it, we're discovering that which is already ours in him.